0: We rejoice, our God, to think that You have not only accomplished our salvation, but given us a sure testimony of it in Your Word that tells us of the promise of the coming Savior, that tells us, our Lord, of Your coming, of Your work on the cross, of Your resurrection, and of Your return. And indeed, we are to anticipate that day, and we ask you to give us the grace to have insight and spiritual understanding to greater and greater depths of that day that is coming, that we might live in light of it more robustly and fully, with greater anticipation and greater joy, even as we sing about this morning. And yet, as it is a time of joy for your people, it is a time of judgment for those who refuse to bow their knee to your authority and to receive your grace and to be reconciled to you. So help us to understand both of these realities and hold them in tension in our heart. And we pray that you would even clarify that for us this morning as we look at Matthew 24 and your very own words speaking about this day. We commit our time to you and we ask and we pray in your precious name, our Lord. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, as we are continuing to go through this portion of Scripture, this really amazing portion of Scripture, anticipating the Lord's return, as noted in the past, that in one sense He's giving the doctrine of His return from verses 4 through 31, and beginning in verse 32, going really to about verse 30 of chapter 25, he's applying that truth. He's applying uh, the reality of his return to the lives of his people, showing us how we should respond, the effect that it should have in our hearts as we think about this great and this uh, terrible day for the world, and yet a day of salvation for his people. Now, we looked last week at verse 36 in this amazing verse, and we considered the general context of the day of the Lord, and then briefly mentioned specifically that amazing statement of Christ that He Himself at that moment was ignorant of that exact day and that time of His return. It's something set and known, a day only by the Father Himself. And as we noted last week, the general context of this return of the Lord and these judgments that are going to precede His actual physical return to the earth is the concept introduced to us in the Old Testament of the day of the, Lord, the day of the Lord the day of the Lord the day of the Lord speaks of a unique intervention or God's unique intervention in the world for judgment and for salvation however the dominant thought in the day of the Lord is in fact his judgment the judgment that is going to come upon the earth Isaiah 35:10 says this and here he emphasizes not only the judgment, but as mentioned, the salvation that will follow. It's judgment for the world and salvation for the people of God. In Isaiah 35, 10, he says that after this judgment and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and find joy. But again, that is after there is a the great affliction that... God brings upon the unbelieving world. Now this is an important theme throughout the Old Testament prophets. It encompasses the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel. So seven years then the tribulation period. And all of those judgments that begin in chapter 4 of Matthew 24 and go down to verse 31, really, with Christ's return. It includes all the events of Revelation chapter 6 all the way through Revelation 19 that records in more detail this time preceding the Lord's return and His return itself. And so all of those things include, in the broad sense, the day of the Lord. And again, it is a day where God unleashes judgment on the world. Again, Isaiah 13:11 says this, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. For their iniquity. So while all of these judgments are coming, all of them are included broadly in the day of the Lord, the emphasis, however, of Jesus, our incarnate Lord, here in Matthew 24, is particularly the time when He descends from heaven, when He comes to Himself personally destroy those who are mounted up in rebellion against Him just before He establishes His kingdom. And it is, in fact, this day that was anticipated at the end of Zechariah. The whole day, Zechariah talks about. But he emphasizes this day in the final chapter. He says in verse 4 of Zechariah 14... In that day, His feet will stand, speaking of Messiah here, on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. He says in verse 6, In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord and the Lord alone neither day nor night, but it will come about at evening time when there will be light. And then he talks of this wonderful restoration that's going to happen in the land of Judea and all around. And then he says in verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. And then he says again in verse 12, returning to the destruction that must first take place, And he says, Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot, and their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another." The emphasis there is particularly the judgments that are going to accompany the Lord when He comes physically to stand in Jerusalem, establish His kingdom after having punished His enemies and those who have risen up against Him, to destroy him and yet they will be destroyed. And that really is the the point that the Lord is emphasizing here in this latter part of Matthew chapter 24 this time precisely of his return when he comes personally to return to stand in Jerusalem and to bring his judgment upon the unbelieving world. And one of the dominant themes, or really the dominant theme, beginning in verse 36, is the reality of the unexpectedness of this day. The unexpectedness of this, this day. The fact that it will catch many unawares, that they will not be ready for it. And that was the point that Jesus was emphasizing in verse 36 when He said, not even the, No one knows this day, the exact timing of this day, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. He's emphasizing there then the unexpectedness of this day. The unexpectedness of it. And that's what He's going to draw our our attention to this morning. So let me read for you beginning at verse 36 and then we're going to stop at verse 41. Let me read to you from verse 36 to verse 41. And then we'll look at it a bit more closely. Verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand, until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left." Now we noted last week, in verse 36, that this was going to be a day that was going to come unexpectedly. That it was going to come with great judgment. And that is, again, what we will emphasize this morning, or the Lord will, but particularly with an illustration, a parallel with the days of Noah. So it is a day that's going to come suddenly, it is a day that's going to come unexpectedly. And that, again, is the main point of Jesus. And the larger idea here, then, or exhortation, is that you should always be prepared. To always be ready. To anticipate this day as if it could, as we sang this morning, happen any moment. And the idea is because you don't know when you will be made to do just that. To stand before the Lord. And at that moment, it is finalized. So whatever spiritual condition one is on that day is the condition that they remain in forever, either guilty or forgiven by the blood of Christ. Let's notice in verse 37, briefly here, then the comparison that he makes. He says, for the coming of the of man will be just like the days of Noah. He's making an obvious comparison here then, between the time of the days of Noah, when the flood came upon the earth, and the time that is yet future to us, When Christ will return and bring worldwide destruction on the earth. Each day of judgment, each point is in response to the wickedness and the rebellion of men on the earth. So to begin, I want to make an important point to set the context for the very idea of judgment itself, for the very broad concept of judgment itself, but particularly these universal judgments, these cataclysmic judgments, these these absolutely all-encompassing judgments on the world. Now we would note up front that this is a difficult and a heavy point but it's one that we must grasp when we think about the judgment of God. Because of our fallen thinking, our tendency to always begin with thoughts of ourself, and secondly, thoughts of God's judgment, sometimes there's a sense almost it could be of the unfairness of this, or what rightness of God would have to do this. But yet, that's exactly the wrong way to think. So I want to note up front... Namely, the justice of God in His judgment. God's ownership of all things as holy creator... ...and man's guilt and worthiness of being judged... ...is a reality that begins in Genesis chapter 3... ...that we have read recently. Ever since that moment of Genesis chapter 3... ...where sin has entered into the world... ...God's wrath has hung over the rebellion and the corruption of men. It's held over them, their head... God's wrath against the wicked deeds of men is always ready to be executed and to be executed justly. Listen to Isaiah chapter 24. We read some of it before. Let me read to you just a few verses. The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants. For they transgressed the laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. He says in verse 20 of Isaiah 24, The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall Never to rise again. There is a picture then there of the very corruption of man that is always corrupting the earth. That, it, that man's sin is a heavy burden on the earth. That the earth bears us up unwillingly as it were because of our sin. And God bears with man until he has accomplished his purposes. And that is the condition that we are in now and always are in and have been in since Genesis chapter 3. And so God's judgment should not surprise us. What should surprise us is God staying His hand as long and as often as He does in light of such provocation by His created beings. In fact, Jonathan Edwards captured this well in his famous sermon, Sinners. Let me read to you a part of it. Were it not... So, that it was the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you, the creature is made subject to the bondage of your corruption, not willingly. The sun don't willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth don't willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lust nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air don't willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals, while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. The world would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of Him who hath subjected it in hope. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays His rough wind. Otherwise it would come with fury, and your destruction would come like a whirlwind, and you would be like the chaff of the summer fleshing floor." End quote. Because of the reality of the corruption of man's heart, because of the reality of sin, judgment looms over the heads of all, and over the over the very reality of creation itself. And God is... As Abraham said in Genesis eighteen twenty five, is a righteous judge. And will not the righteous judge or the judge of all the earth do what is right? And he will and he does even when he judges in such cataclysmic and universal ways. And it is not then when we think of the judgment of God in the days of Noah... Or in the judgment of God in the days of the return of Christ, that somehow God is less provoked today than He was then or will be in the future. Or that somehow man's sin and rebellion is not as bad today as it was then or that it will be in the future. It is that God raises His hand for His own sovereign purposes. In fact, Paul reminds us when he preached the gospel in Athens, he proclaimed to those philosophers if you will, that God has set a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness according to His own righteous standard. So this day has been set, and He will again judge the world, this time in fire. It is a day set and known to God alone, but will be known to all men when He actually brings the judgment to the earth. But the fact that God tells us about that day in his word is, in fact, a mercy of God. It is, in a way, a pleading of God to say, listen to the reality and the consequences of your sin and flee from the wrath that is to come. Flee from my judgment by fleeing to the very God who will bring it. Flee to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 37, as we said then, He's. Bringing us back then to that day, that day of Noah when he destroyed all of the earth with a flood. And again, he's making a comparison. Now, there are many ways in which the days of Noah and these final days could be compared. We could compare the idea, in fact, that it was a complete and a universal destruction. It was not a local flood, it was a universal flood, and all men everywhere perished in it, except for. Noah, whom he saved. And in the same way, when Christ comes, it will be a universal destruction that he brings. We could compare it by the fact that there were signs and warnings for both that were unheeded, that were ignored by the unbelieving and the rebellious. We could mention that it was both a time of great wickedness, both then and the time when Christ returns. It was a world full with violence and immorality. And we've understood the characteristics of the kingdom of the Antichrist and the world at that time. And God has told us many times in His Word that men will be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, so on and so forth. That it will be a time of great immorality because they will worship the creature rather than Creator and all kinds of wickedness in all manner. Of wickedness will prevail. So it was in the time of Noah, and so it will be at that time. In fact, God's judgment of men and his diagnostics of man, that their thoughts are only evil continually, the thoughts and intentions of their heart are ultimately evil continually, is no different today than it was then. And in fact, in 1 Peter 3:20 and 2 Peter 25, we won't turn there now. When he's talking about those very days when, Noah, when God did bring the flood in Noah's day, that it was a time of ungodliness. It was a time of wickedness. It was a time of great iniquity. However... None of those comparisons are the comparisons that the Lord is making here. They're all true, and they could all be made in a discussion, but the Lord is here particularly zeroing in on one aspect of this day of Noah, and the judgment then, and the day of the coming of the Lord. And it is this, that it was unexpected. That it was unexpected. The judgment that came upon the unbelieving world of that day took them by surprise. They were not ready for it. They were not thinking that it would come when it did, and yet it did. And that's what he describes here. Look at verse 38. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. The picture here is that they were going about normal life as if destruction were not looming. As if everything that God had basically declared through Noah was not going to happen. That Noah was the one that was the fool and they were the ones that were the wise. They went about life as if the destruction that was coming upon them was not a reality. And notice here that these activities are not sinful activities. They're not ungodly activities. He's not here emphasizing the wickedness or the wicked activities of men, namely that they were just living life. They were living life like we live life generally. They were not expecting death, and they certainly were not expecting the judgment that God was going to bring. And as it was before the flood, so it will be before the judgment of Christ return. Now before going on here and really getting to the heart of what the lord says there's there's two questions that need to be asked and that rise up in our mind. The first is this if he is referring to the time just before the return of Christ and I'm arguing that he is, referring particularly to the time when Christ will appear physically from earth. Again, it is comparing the coming of the Son of Man, which he's just described, in verses 29 through 31. But if he's addressing that time, then the question arises, how can men be going about normal life in light of the great judgments that are described in Matthew 24 through 28 and in Revelation 6 through 19? How could they be going about normal life? Normal life. And we would also ask if the period is marked off as seven years, three and a half years from the abomination of desolation in verse 15, how is it then unexpected? Let me deal with the first of that, begin with the first question. How could that be normal activities during the judgment described during the tribulation? The amazing reality is that. In the tribulation period, and by John himself, these normal activities and normal life are described as taking place. Even though God is unleashing great judgments and that there is great destruction, yet men continually seek to establish some kind of normal life in these days. Listen to Revelation 18. Now, remember, in Revelation 18, we were one challenger before the return of Christ. We're in the great harlot city of Babylon. We're at the latter period of the Daniel 70th week, the day of the Lord of the Tribulation period, all referring generally to the same time. And that, listen to this description. He says, And in it there were the sound of harpist in verse 22, and musicians and flute players and trumpeteers, But they will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. So what he's referring to here then is that the time of the judgment of that great city... There's going to be destruction and those activities are going to stop. But until that destruction comes, which is at the end, those are indeed the very activities that will be taking place. And we would take note that those are the very activities in part that Jesus mentions here in Matthew 24. Two will be grinding at the mill. Two men will be out in the field. There will be marrying and given in marriage the voice of the bride and of the bridegroom. So the reality is that there will be some sense of normalcy that's sought by those even who live under such great judgments in such terrible times. Moreover, the unexpected nature of his return is mentioned again in the midst of these great judgments. In revelation sixteen verse fifteen referring to the time that the kings are gathering up a war and army to fight in the Battle of Armageddon, he says this in verse fifteen don 't turn there i 'll read it revelation sixteen fifteen behold, I am coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. The point there being that even in the midst of these judgments, he gives the warning that this time is going to come unexpectedly. It's going to come like a thief and you are to be prepared. So this is a time when there will be some normal activities during the great judgments of God. They will be seeking some sort of normalcy, as odd as that seems even to us. But the second question is this. How could it be so expected? How could it be unexpected? And this answer then gets to the heart of the indictment. This really gets to the heart of what he is here revealing about the nature of the sinfulness of men and the nature of the sinfulness of men that was apparent during the time of his return. And not only then, but throughout the ages. The answer is this. They were willfully ignorant until Noah entered the ark. They were willfully ignorant. In other words, their ignorance was an expression of their rebellion. Their ignorance was itself an expression of the corruption, the very corruption that is inciting the wrath of God that he's bringing to begin with. To say that it was unexpected does not mean that it wasn't foretold by God or that there was no warning. And that's the important point. Those things that were given by God in a sense to prepare them... ...that should have awakened them... ...in fact only proved to be further evidence of the hardness of the heart of man... ...by ignoring them. 2 Peter two five, referring to this time, says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. The indication there being that during the life of Noah... During the time that he was building the ark, at least, he was one who declared the righteousness of God to that unbelieving and to that wicked generation. In other words, God was not silent. He had his servant. His word was being proclaimed. There was a warning going out of the mouth of Noah, and yet it was a warning that was unheeded. They would not listen. In Hebrews eleven seven, speaking of this same time, says that Noah condemned the world. He condemned the world. How did he condemn the world? Well, there the idea is that the, by the very preaching of Noah that was ignored, and by the very living illustration of him building an ark as he preached, and it being ignored, God's justice in bringing the condemnation that he did was through the acts of Noah... Justified, he was vindicated. For 120 years, Noah built the ark in a desert. Well, it wasn't really a desert, but it was in a land where it had never rained. It had never rained. And here is this man building an ark according to the commandment of God. And it was unheeded, this act of Noah. His obedience, as well as his preaching, then was a means of condemning the world. The warnings were unheeded. The signs were ignored. It simply wasn't believed. And it simply was not taken seriously. In fact, it was mocked. Again, Second Peter reminds us of that. That they mocked Noah. Where is this judgment that you speak of? Everything goes on as it has before. We do not fear. Noah, you are the one who is wrong. And we are in the right. We have no reason to fear. They mocked him and therefore displaying the great depth of spiritual blindness and willful ignorance that can overtake and control the unregenerate and unbelieving heart. And this kind of willful ignorance and rebellion of man's heart is always the response to the revelation of God. And it should shock us. As it does shock us, and it should amaze us at how much and how deeply that sin can corrupt even our rationality, even the things that we can see plainly before our eyes. And yet, this is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. Lucifer was in the presence of God, and yet sin entered into his heart, and he rebelled, and a third of the angels... Adam and Eve were created with no sin and lived in a perfect environment and yet chose to rebel against the word of God. Israel beheld the works of God in His delivering them out of Egypt through mighty signs and great displays of His power, great testimonies to His character and to His faithfulness. And yet Hebrews 3 says, God was not pleased with that generation because they always go astray in their hearts. ...in light of these great judgments of God... ...and yet it did not elicit and draw out of the people who saw them... ...the response of faith and repentance as it should have. Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate, healed the sick... ...opened the eyes of the blind, caused the lame to walk, raised the dead... ...and yet rather than eliciting faith in the unbelieving... ...it provoked jealousy in the heart of the leaders... And so that even after the raising of Lazarus, which was, in, which was indisputable, an indisputable act of Christ, the leaders, it says, from that day on, planned together to kill him. So the reality of the sins, blinding effects on the heart of man, even as we see in these days preceding Noah and the days that will immediately precede the coming of the Son of Man is a reality that is always before our eyes. Indeed, many of us could testify that to that in our own lives as we were exposed to the truth of God, exposed to the Word of God, and yet rejected that, did not understand it, rebelled against it until a day that if we know Him and God has brought us to repentance, all of that changed. So when the Bible talks about the reality of our fallenness and the depth at which sin corrupts our souls and renders us guilty before God and provokes from Him wrath, when the Bible tells us about all that thing and that message goes out of the mouth of God's people, the unbelieving ignore it, as they did in the days of Noah. Mock it. Treat it with indifference. And in its place, tout instead personal or human goodness or ingenuity, or power, or strength. Indeed, we can only imagine the depth of the sin of man's heart that does not respond and is not rightly provoked to faith and to obedience when God who has revealed His Son in all of His glory, the Son who has come in flesh, crucified, crushed, made to experience the anguish of the weight of our sin on the cross... The son who was born testimony to his work by the father when he was raised from the dead before all. The ultimate sign that stands before all men of the rightness and the truthfulness of God and his testimony to his son. And yet to hear that, the unregenerate might think it's a nice thought, might respond with some admiration or they may ridicule and mock, or treat with indifference, they see no glory to respond to. There is nothing in these truths and these great works and acts of God that provokes out of them or draws out of them shame and repentance for sin, nothing to draw out worship, and nothing that provokes them to lose everything that they might gain Christ. John Brown, an old commentator writing on the verse in Hebrews, says this, Making the same point, the unbeliever, like the ungodly world in the days of Noah, hears the divine testimony, but will not receive it. Hell excites no fears, and heaven no desires. End quote. Hell excites no fears, and heaven no desires. And that is then an expression of the fallenness of our heart. And that is precisely why it was unexpected to the people in Noah's day. Because of the hardness of the heart, because of the corruption of the heart, there was a refusal to respond to the warning and to the word of God. And I would suggest to you that there are some who are maybe sitting here, some who may hear the preaching of the word of God, who are sitting on the fence, who know the truth about the testimony of God toward His Son, who have felt the reality of their sin at times, but will not come all the way to Christ. There are some who are hiding behind a false sense of religion. There are some who are hiding and finding comfort in some sense of their good works or their goodness. There are some who hide behind the fact that they are friendly or accepting of the Christian religion. Some have created their own version of the gospel or have their own personalized, self-styled theology that they think will be adequate in that day and they think will protect them from the day of wrath. But the warning here is that it won't. It will not. As Jesus said in Luke thirteen three, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let me make this point once again by borrowing from Jonathan Edwards. This is a rather lengthy quote, but I wanted to give it for some context. Listen to his words. All wicked men's pains and contrivances they use to escape hell, while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men, don't secure them from hell one moment. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done and what he is now doing or what he intends to do. Every man lays out matters in his own mind how he shall avoid damnation. But the foolish children of men do miserably delude themselves in their own schemes and in their confidence in their own strength and wisdom. They trust to nothing but a shadow." The bigger part of those that heretofore have lived under the same means of grace and are now dead are undoubtedly gone to hell. And it was not because they were not as wise as those that are now alive. It was not because they did not lay out matters as well for themselves to secure their own escape. If it were so that we could come to speak with them and inquire of them one by one whether they expected when alive and when they used to hear about hell or ever to be the subjects of that misery, we doubtless should hear one and another reply as such. And though I never intended to come here, I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I thought I should contrive well for myself. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take effectual care. But it came upon me unexpected. I did not look for it at that time and in that manner. It came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. My cursed foolishness, I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I would do hereafter. And when I was saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction came upon me. End quote. And that is the very idea. That is the idea of what will come upon this generation. But in fact, it is the idea of what is threatened to all men who will eventually die at the appointed day. At the appointed day. They refused to listen to the warnings and the word of God. And so it is to many today. Some maybe in this room. And yet, it came upon them suddenly and it came upon them in a manner that was final and that was absolute listen again to what he says until the day until the day that noah entered the ark verse 38 and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away so it would be with the coming of the son of man The flood here, again, coincides with the physical return of the Lord. Once Noah entered the ark and the flood came, they were no longer ignorant. They were no longer unaware and uninformed about the judgment of God. At that moment, it was fully realized as true, as real, even as it is for many who die in their rejection of the gospel and yet immediately realize that it is, in fact, true. God is who He has said that He is, and He holds us accountable as He has said He would hold us accountable. Now, Scripture is silent on whether some in the midst of that judgment called upon the Lord. We might ask those kind of questions. But the fact is, the implication is, they did not. And in fact, when the judgment came and took them all away, they were unprepared because it was unexpected, and they are eternally in the state. They were in which it came, at the time in which it came. The picture here is of immediate judgment, of immediate judgment. And the point is that when the Son executes His judgment on the earth, so it will be the same way, immediate, sudden, unexpected, and final. There will be no other opportunities for second chances. Any who suppose that salvation could be put off until another time will be found to be mistaken. They will found to be wrong. Which may in fact be why the Lord emphasizes the unexpectedness of the day. To yet just give another layer against that natural tendency of man to put things off and to think that they are secure it may be that he says this and emphasizes the unexpectedness just to pull out the rug of that argument under the feet of fallen man and to say no you cannot prepare for it you cannot know it will come when you least expect it it will come at a time when you are not ready it will come at a time when you are not looking for it. Now in a more immediate sense, the day of judgment and reckoning and the day of death can both come upon anyone. And if anyone dies as an unbeliever before this day or as an unbeliever on this day, the result in the end is the same, it is judgment. In other words, the point there is that God doesn't need the day of the Lord to bring these things about. Death always looms before men. It could happen at any moment. God doesn't need a, a cataclysmic judgment at the end of the age for this warning to ring true. It's always the warning that God gives to the unrepentant sinner. Again, and lastly, let me borrow one more time from Edwards who makes this point. The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows that this is not evidence, in other words, the fact that it, there's no visible threat to your life. That a man is not on the brink of eternity and that his next step won't be into another world. The unseen, unthought-of ways and means of persons going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to make it appear that God had need to be at the expense of a miracle or to go out of the ordinary course of His providence to destroy any wicked man at any moment." And so there they were going about normal life not heeding and not listening to the warnings of God refusing to lay hold of by faith his word so it will be now and so it or it is now and so it will be till the end of the age even in light of such stupendous and amazing opportunities given by God Even in the midst of the tribulation, the gospel going forth preached in fact in the whole world. And yet, these will ignore it. As do many who sit under the preaching of the gospel week after week. And always satisfy themselves or their conscience. And somehow that it will be fine with them. And ignore the warnings of God. Let's note lastly here. It will be a surprising day. It will be a sudden day, an unexpected day, and it will then be a surprising day. This is in verses 40 and 41. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. It will be a surprising day because of the sudden separation that will may be made between those who are judged and those who are spared. Between those who are believing and between those who are unbelieving. And that's the essential point that he's making here. But it will be a surprise. It will be a surprise. Again, the picture that he's giving here is of those who are going about normal life. As we mentioned, is happening even in the last days in Revelation 18 mentioned that. That there is a grinding at the mill, that there are two men in the field. These are normal life activities, nothing sinful about them. It's just what we do to survive. Now, this is, in fact, in one way, one of the most challenging verses to understand or interpret precisely in this section. And the question is is the one taken, taken to judgment, or is he taken to be with the Lord? What is he talking about here? And the main issue is this, to discern, is whether the Lord is emphasizing the beginning of the day of the Lord, in other words, the initial enactment of these judgments of God during these final years, or if he's referring specifically to the end of that period, climaxing with his physical return, the Lord's physical return from heaven. If he's referring to the beginning of the period, then it would, in fact, be a strong argument for the rapture of the church. It would, in fact, be a strong point to be made for God pulling out his own, the church alive at the time, on the earth at that time, and those who will come up out of the graves if it were, in fact, the beginning of the period. But we've already noted that Jesus is not referring to the beginning of the period here, and therefore He's not referring to the rapture of the church. He's referring specifically to the time of the coming of the Son of Man. Remember, the comparison is with the flood. And the flood is equal to the coming of the Son when He descends from heaven and enacts judgment on the earth. So the immediate context into the actual judgment of the flood. The rapture, by contrast, does not consist in Christ coming all the way to the earth in judgment of 1 Thessalonians 4:13 and following, but in fact, him coming for salvation and rescue, and there is no mention there of him coming all the way to the earth, but calling up his own to meet him in the air. But here he's specifically referring to the Lord's coming all the way to earth, coming to bring judgment on those who are in rebellion against him. So then if it's not the rapture, then are the ones taken taken into judgment or are they taken to be saved? Those who understand this to be taken into judgment look to the use of the phrase in verse 39, and the flood came and took them all away took them all away. And argue that the same idea of taking to judgment applies here. Moreover, they may, who hold that position, say that as in Matthew 13, the angels do come and remove stumbling blocks out of the ground before the Lord establishes His kingdom. And of course, that is true. However... More likely here, I would hold, is that he's taking one to salvation. In other words, to escape this judgment that the Lord is bringing and leaving one to experience it. In other words, the one left is not one left to enter into the millennial kingdom. It is one left to experience this coming judgment of God that Christ will bring. In fact, the terms here are very important and why they are He says, well, one will be taken is a term that most often, not always, but most often refers to being taken with, to be with someone. And it is the very word that Jesus will use, in fact, only days later in John 14, 3, speaking to his disciples when he says that he will come and take them with him. The word left here is very often, one could argue most often, used here in this kind of context to speak of the idea of being abandoned, such as when Jesus said He will not leave or abandon His disciples as orphans. And the angels here who are mentioned in this context are angels in verse 31 who are gathering His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And I think it's most likely that, that is the one, those are the ones that are being taken here. They are taken... They are gathered together, and then the ones left are those who are left to experience the judgment of God. But in either way, whether one is taken or left for judgment or salvation, that's not the main point, and it doesn't affect the Lord's meaning here. The essence of what the Lord is saying, regardless of which one is taken and which one is left, is this, that one will be judged and one will be saved. That there will be a separation There will be a discerning act by God wherein he separates the judged from the saved, the believing from the unbelieving. And that is his essential point here. So it doesn't really matter which way somebody takes, taken or left. That's inconsequential. The point is that one will be taken to judgment or one will be taken to salvation. In either way, there will be a separation that is made. And this separation will happen suddenly. It it will happen at a time when it is not expected by either one. And so he gives a warning here. and He gives a warning. He gives a warning to us as He gave a warning in the days of Noah. He gives a warning to us as He will warn those who are in the days right before the coming of the Son of Man. And the warning is that judgment is coming. It is coming. And yet, the very warning itself of the terrible nature and the universal of the nature is in fact a sign of the mercy of God. Because the warning itself is in fact a plea to escape that judgment. To not be a part of it. Which he will emphasize again throughout the remainder of the chapter. But now we can remember his coming. We can remember it for those of us who know him as the salvation for the people of God. For those who anticipate his coming, not for judgment, but for salvation. The revelation of Christ from heaven for. The realization of the fullness of our redemption. That is what we long for and what we hope for. But as we do that, and as it is witnessed our very act that we do in the taking of these elements, anticipating His coming for salvation, if there are some, even in this small group this morning, who do not know Him, who are sitting on that fence, who think that tomorrow will come as tomorrow always comes, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. The warning is, do not be so foolish as to think that you can somehow judge and provide a way of escape from the judgment of God by your own scheming. But know that death comes at any moment whether it be the day of the Lord, whether it be some other means which are innumerable, it comes and judgment will be secured at that moment. So consider your life. Consider your relationship or lack of it with the living God, your Creator, and with Christ. But for us who do know Him, we rejoice now as we come to this table and we remember that in each of these elements, the bread representing a body broken. The juice, the red of the juice, representing the blood, the violently spilled blood of our Lord for our sin. So that we can anticipate His coming with joy. And that he, like Noah, who was in fact spared from the judgment of God, Noah and his family, because he believed in the promise of God and in the Word of God. And so let us take time to rejoice and remember the greatness of our salvation and the wonder of anticipating our soon and returning King. Bow with me, and then the men will hand out the elements, of all and we'll worship at the Lord's table. Our Father, how terrible! And how can we grasp, we who have no real context in our experience? Such destruction, such supernatural destruction to come upon the rebellion of men. And we might indeed be tempted to think that the depth and the greatness of the destruction that is coming, the depth and the seriousness of the warning that is issued, is in itself a testimony to the greatness of our corruption and our guilt as fallen people. But in fact, it is not. Your word would testify to the greatest reality and expression of the depth of our sin is not the flood and is not your return and is not the tribulation period. It is the cross. It is that there was no other way for our sin to be atoned for, to be removed from uh, us as a burden on our back, than that You, the Holy Son of God, would have to become incarnate and stand in our place and bear it Yourself for us. That, more than anything, testifies to us both of the depth of our sin and of the greatness of Your grace that alone stands to us as a warning and it stands to us as a beacon of hope calling us to come and to bow our knee before the one who so graciously has made a way for us to be reconciled so that the guilty could be made clean and the judged could be forgiven and those doomed could have hope. And it is that hope that we celebrate this morning. It is that hope purchased for us by the blood of the Son of God that we celebrate this morning in the table. Help us, please, to have hearts of worship, of true hearts of worship, and obedience as we as your people remember together you and your great sacrifice on our behalf, our present fellowship as your children, and our united anticipation of your return. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.